1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike.
0: And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in sections 125 through 128. Now, before we jump into that, can I just make a comment? If you would turn to the very beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants before section one, it's a chronological list of the revelations. It will show you the date and the place of the section. Now, take a look at where the majority of the sections in the Doctrine and Covenants were received we started out in New York. By section 40, we're out of New York and into Ohio. Starting in section 41, we're back and forth between Ohio and Missouri, and then a whole lot of revelations come to us in Kirtland, Ohio. 112 is the last of Ohio, and then we go to Missouri And there's a handful of sections received in Missouri, and that makes sense because of what was going on, the last three of which were from the letter that Joseph wrote from Liberty Jail. Then we get to the Nauvoo period. If you're looking at this chronological list, we've got section 124, and then all the way to section 135 is the announcement of Joseph's martyrdom. Now, Nauvoo, though we're going to talk today about some perils on Joseph's life, but Nauvoo was a relatively peaceful time for Joseph, and he's there for a considerable amount of time, and that's the list of revelations that we have. And you'll even notice 125 and 126 are very small. 129 is small, 130 is small, 131 is small. We've got the section on marriage, and then by 135, we're announcing his martyrdom. 134 and 133 were not received in Nauvoo. So we have a very limited number of revelations from Nauvoo. And so you might ask, where are the revelations? Ohio was filled with revelations. And here in Nauvoo, where Joseph Smith is at the peak of his revelatory abilities, and he receives so few. And the answer is the temple. Joseph is receiving revelations for the temple. He begins section 128 by saying, I now resume the subject of the baptism for the dead as that subject seems to occupy my mind and press itself upon my feelings the strongest. So that he can say in the scriptures. That is revelation for the scriptures. But how much is coming to Joseph that is reserved for the temple alone? So please understand that Joseph's mind is active and he is flourishing in revelation. But the bulk of that revelation is to be found inside the temple, not in the Doctrine and Covenants. So what we're going to cover today is just a few minor sections and then jump into his mind being on the work for the dead. Joseph in Nauvoo is revealing temple truths.
1: Excellent. I would also add that he's setting up a legal circumstance whereby Nauvoo can defend itself. And with its incorporation, he's also establishing a kingdom, the kingdom of God at Nauvoo, and he's building a temple. And also at this time, especially in the fall of 1842, he's going to have to be dealing with some legal things that are happening down in Missouri. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he's got a lot going on here in section 125. The background to this revelation that has to do with the building of Zarahemla, the building of Nauvoo and the building of Nashville to get into the background, you kind of got to go back to when Joseph was in Liberty Jail. So back when Bishop Partridge was alive and he was in Illinois and Joseph was in jail, Joseph Smith wrote to Bishop Partridge that the saints could buy land in Iowa territory for about $2 an acre over 20 years. And so the saints made the deal for the land. And when Joseph escapes from Missouri and joins the saints in Illinois, he purchases land on the peninsula, pushing into the Mississippi across from the saints, Iowa land. At the time it was commerce, but the saints changed the name to Nauvoo. But the Illinois land, compared to the land across the river, was more expensive. And so Joseph hoped that the church could buy it with consecrated funds and then offer lots to the poorer saints at prices that they could afford. But the funding was kind of insufficient. It was difficult. And so it became clear that the church would have to sell lots in order to pay the mortgage. And so Joseph urged the saints in outline areas to come gather to Nauvoo to help pay for the land. And then in section 125, it also says that the saints were to build a city in Iowa across from Nauvoo and to call it Zarahemla. And I think that's, you know, paying homage to the city in the Book of Mormon. I don't think we're making any kind of prophetic statement saying where the city of Zarahemla was. I think they're just naming it after that. That's my take on that. And the saints were to gather from everywhere else and settle there in nearby Nashville, Iowa territory or across the river in Nauvoo. And so that's kind of the background, I really like verse 2. The Lord says, Verily, thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, if those who call themselves by my name and are as saying to be my saints, if they do my will and keep my commandments concerning them, let them gather themselves together. And that word as saying means
0: trying. Unfortunately, we don't use that word. And so we we often pass this verse over and miss the significance of what the Lord's saying. is You don't have to be perfect, but try. If you're trying to be my saints, you're worthy. Worthiness doesn't equate with perfection. If you're trying to be my saints, I call you mine.
1: That is an important golden thread where the Lord is trying to reach us and say, just keep going, right? I mean, it's just one little word, but there it
0: is. It's the Savior's grace that makes us perfect, but we need to assay. We need to try and move forward. And I think the value of the word "essay" is it's more than try. Sometimes we just kind of blow off, well, I tried. But it's this commitment to trying again, to get up, dust yourself off, and try again. That's the word assay more than just, well, I tried and it's over. It's I really am trying. And I'm getting myself up every time I fall.
1: The last thing I might mention in this section about Nashville and Zarahemla is that when the saints went west to Salt Lake, those two places were used as gathering places for the saints as they fled Nauvoo. And so it was one of those stopover places where you could kind of get yourself together and then head west. And so with that, we're going to go to section 126, which is a revelation given to Brigham Young, specifically that he's not required anymore to leave his family. So you see, he went to England on a mission and he spent many of his early years in the service of the church and was not really with his family as much. And there's a lot of records on the kind of poverty that he existed in and the, the kinds of things that he did where he would go and he would not really have a lot of money, but yet somehow in the course of his missionary labors, the Lord would provide, provide a way for them to Publish documents to disseminate information about the church, find a way for him to be provided with clothing so that he had something to wear while he was on his mission. And he was pretty adamant that it was the Lord who was providing for him. And, you know, when he left on the 39 mission in 1839, he was really sick and they didn't have a lot of money. And somehow they made it to England in a time period when traveling to England wasn't like it is today. And so I think what we see here is the Lord commending him. But I also, Bryce, see this as the Quorum of the Twelve is ascending. And so we're going to have a switch where the local high councils were the quorum underneath the first presidency. And then the traveling high council or the Quorum of the Twelve, they presided anywhere where there weren't stake presidencies. But in 1841, beginning in the Nauvoo era, the Quorum of the Twelve will rise in ascendancy and Joseph will put them in a place where they are the next quorum to lead the church. And then there will be conversations where Joseph tells them when he's gone, that the Quorum of the Twelve will govern the affairs of the church. And from that, we get Brigham, who's the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and then he will eventually become the second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So big picture for me, Bryce, I see this as the Lord saying, I'm going to keep you here. You see the wisdom in keeping Brigham Young around Nauvoo for the next several years. Yes. Now, ironically, when Joseph's
0: killed, In June of 1844, where's Brigham? He's gone on a mission.
1: (laughs) He's actually doing it. And it's
0: on his mission that the revelation comes to him. Did Joseph go into the spirit world and take the keys? And he slaps his knee and says, no, the keys are right here with the quorum of the 12 apostles. So he's on a mission when Joseph dies, but there was this nice little chunk of time Between you know Brigham serving so many missions and then spending time with his family and at Nauvoo at under the direction of Joseph Smith, it's about this time period that Brigham Young will later say, "In my experience, I never did let an opportunity pass of getting with the Prophet Joseph and of hearing him speak in public or in private, so that I might draw understanding from the fountain from which he spoke." that I might have it and bring it forth when it was needed. Such moments were more precious to me than all the wealth of the world. No matter how great my poverty, if I had to borrow a meal to feed my wife and children, I never let an opportunity pass of learning what the prophet had to impart. This is the secret of the success of your humble servant." So there was great wisdom in keeping Brigham Young in Nauvoo with his family during these great years where he could be tutored by Joseph Smith.
1: Yeah. So relating his early experiences in the church, Brigham did say, I came into this church in the spring of 1832. I took a mission to Canada at my own expense. And from the time that I was baptized until the day of our sorrow and affliction at the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, no summer passed over my head, but what I was traveling and preaching. And the only thing I ever received from the church during those 12 years, and the only means that were ever given to me by the prophet that I now recollect, was in 1842, when Brother Joseph sent me a half a small pig that the brethren had bought him, and I didn't ask him for it, and it weighed 93 pounds." And then he goes on, but he basically talks about how he went out and he just went out and preached and didn't expect anything for it. Brigham went on further. He said, for me to travel and preach without purse or script was never hard. I never saw the day. I was never in the place nor went into a house when I was alone or when I could take the lead and do the talking, but what I could get everything I needed. Though I have been with those who would take the lead and be mouth." and been turned out of doors a great many times and could not get a night's lodging. But when I was mouth, I was never turned out of doors. I could make the acquaintance of the family and sit down with them and chat with them. And they would feel friendly towards me. And when they learned that I was a quote, Mormon elder, it was after that I had gained their good feelings. When he's talking about being the mouth, what he's talking about is I'm taking the lead in the discussion. It's an interesting way that they would phrase it. He's essentially saying, listen, we didn't have money but the Lord provided. And he also mentions that when he went to England in 1839, he said, most of the 12 were sick. And those who were not sick when they started were sick on the way to Ohio. And then he says, brother Taylor was left to die on the roadside and old father Coltrane, though he did not die. I was not able to walk to the river, not so far as across the block. No, not before half as far. I had to be helped to the river in order to get into the boat even across it. That was our situation. I didn't even have an overcoat. I took a small quilt from the trundle bed and that served as my overcoat while I was traveling to the state of New York. And then I had a coarse overcoat given to me. Thus, we went to England to a strange land to sojourn among strangers. And then later he says, we were pretty much destitute of means to buy any necessary article. We didn't have the first cent to begin with. So what did he do? Well, he borrowed money from Sister Jane Benbow, 250 pounds, and 100 from Brother Thomas Kington, and returned to Manchester, where he says, quote, We printed 3,000 hymn books, 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon, and issued 2,000 millennial stars monthly, and in the course of the summer, printed and gave away rising of 60,000 tracks. And then he talks about how during the course of time, that money would flow in to pay for these things, and that he didn't owe anybody any money at the conclusion of his mission. He says, I was there one year and sixteen days with my brethren of the twelve, and during that time I bought all my clothing except for one pair of pants, which the sisters gave me in Liverpool soon after I arrived there, and which I really needed. I told the brethren in one of my discourses that there was no need of their begging, for if they needed anything, the sisters the sisters could understand that. The sisters, they took care of us, and the pantaloons were forthcoming. I paid $380 to get the work started in London, and when I arrived home in Nauvoo, I owed no person one farthing. That's Brigham Young. The reason why I think this is important is because it's at this time period, 1839, 1840, where we have core members of the church that have left, as we've discussed in sections 115 through 120. And so the influx of these converts from England is truly vital to the growth of the church. And it really does cause the population of Nauvoo to explode. Nauvoo will rival Chicago as the largest city in the state of Illinois. And a big part of that are these converts that are coming from across the Atlantic Ocean. From 1839 to 1841, nine members of the Quorum the Twelve worked in Great Britain and added another 4,000 converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I mean, in just a short time, the Twelve Apostles organized an entire emigration program. I mean, it's one thing to baptize them. It's another thing to get them across the ocean and into Nauvoo. And then they establish a major publication program. I mean, any one of these by itself is a great accomplishment. But to accomplish all three, the baptism of converts, to put an immigration program together, and then to establish a major publication program, every one of those is just a fantastic accomplishment. And it happens in such a short period of time. And on top of it, they have nothing they literally go over there with no money. They've lost everything in Missouri. All their stuff is burned to the ground and they come to Nauvoo with nothing. And then by 1844, there's close to 20,000 people living there, Latter-day Saints living the gospel. They're building a temple. And what I see this is a metaphor for what God can make of our lives. And I see the mission to England, as absolutely fundamental to this time period in church history. I mean, I wonder how many of our listeners can say, that mission that those 12 went on changed my family tree. It's pretty
0: powerful stuff. Some of those converts were my ancestors. This is about the time when many of my ancestors come to the United States as members of the church and come to Nauvoo. My great-great-great-grandfather was William Clayton, who becomes Joseph Smith's scribe and friend, and they build a relationship that will last for many years. So a wonderful influx of saints will come from England and start to flow into Nauvoo. One more thing I want to make you aware of is there's a tremendous resource in your gospel library called Revelations in Context. And towards the end of that, there's an article called take special care of your family which is the story of brigham young and his family and this particular section where he's told hey you're going to stay home for a while and what that meant to his wife mary ann i would encourage you to find that article in the revelations in context section under church history so from the gospel library main menu church history then revelations in context and then find the article take special care of your family revelations in context is so helpful I'm with you, Bryce. It's good stuff. So now we jump into Joseph's deep innermost thoughts of what's really going on in Nauvoo, and that's the work that happens in the temple. Joseph reveals in 1840 that he has received information on how to save our dead. Now, the Lord's going to point out many times in this week's reading that these things have been reserved from the very beginning. This is not unique to the latter days that the idea of saving the dead is as old as this earth. I love personally the image in Ezekiel chapter 48. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, he see, he's taken in vision to the door of the temple. Now, this would be the temple in Jerusalem. And water is flowing out of the front door of the temple, and it's headed east And as it flows, it gets bigger, it gets deeper and gets broader. If you know what's east of the temple in Jerusalem, it's nothing but the Kidron Valley, which is bare and it's desert. But this water flows east into the Dead Sea. And as soon as the water from the temple flows into the Dead Sea, it heals the sea. And Ezekiel is brought to the edge and he sees life in the Dead Sea. Now, deep imagery here, but clearly this is pointing to what flows out of temple work and into the Dead Sea or the spirit world and brings life to the dead. So clearly as back as Ezekiel in the Old Testament, they knew the significance of the temple. And now Joseph begins to plant in their minds this idea of saving their ancestors, of providing essential ordinance work to people who didn't have a chance to hear it on earth. And there is tremendous interest in Nauvoo about it. So now we get to sections 127 and 128, which were written from hiding. Joseph will reveal in verse 1 of section 127 that his life is being threatened by enemies, And that he is going to, quote, leave the place for a short season. We ought to pause a little bit. Why is he in hiding? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think one of the
1: things that's important to talk about with this section, but this time period as well, is Joseph Smith left the custody of Bowman and Morgan in April of 1839. Now, I do believe Hiram Smith's account that when William Morgan tells him, listen, we were instructed by the judge to let you guys free. I I believe Hiram's account. Absolutely believe it. But there's political pressure from some of the people that hate members of the church that they want to extradite Joseph, meaning they want to bring him back into Missouri and try him. And so essentially, Joseph's kind of living as a fugitive in this time period, meaning that at any time, a magistrate could come from Missouri and bring charges against him. Now, another thing that is worthy of note, on May 6th, 1842, at about nine o'clock at night, Governor Boggs is reading his newspaper in his house, and somebody comes up with a gun and shoots Governor Boggs. And they don't kill him. You know, it was a damaging but not fatal shot. And suspicion was first directed to Boggs's political rivals in a heated campaign that he was having. But two weeks later, anti-Mormons in Illinois, they start reporting rumors that Joseph Smith was responsible. So rumors again are flying around. But here's the thing. Joseph Smith wasn't in Missouri, so he couldn't have done it. So enemies of the prophet in Missouri start to accuse a guy by the name of Orrin Porter Rockwell. And Orrin Porter Rockwell is a colorful figure in church history. He's a bodyguard and faithful friend of the prophet. He later would be a bodyguard of Brigham Young. Uh, he was a Danite. And Oren Porter Rockwell was not afraid to use violence and self-defense. And so many people started to assume that he did it. And the running line goes something like this. When he was asked, did you shoot Boggs? Porter says, is he (laughs)
0: alive? Is he alive? If he's alive, then no, I didn't take the shot. He would be dead if I took the shot. That's
1: totally Oren Porter Rockwell. So they do have some circumstantial evidence on him. So basically what's going on is enemies of the church are hoping that they can come up to Nauvoo and charge Oren Porter Rockwell and Joseph Smith with this in the hopes that they could bring him back into Missouri and eventually lynch Joseph. I mean, that's kind of where they're going with this. And from my take, Joseph sees these proceedings as a pretext to getting him kidnapped. And so what he does is he uses the Nauvoo Charter to create legal obstacles to prevent him from being extradited. And so what does he do? Well, in July of 1842, so a couple months before this section, before he's in hiding, the city council passes an ordinance that goes something like this, that the city of Nauvoo has the right to examine any outside arrest warrant and issue a writ of habeas corpus. A warrant for Joseph's extradition would then fall under this law, which then required the municipal court of Nauvoo to review the case and approve it or deny it. So essentially, they're playing chess with with, uh, legal chess pieces. Joseph's on the city council as mayor, and so as mayor of the city, he basically creates a hedge around any way that Missouri can come and arrest him. Essentially, that's what's going on. So with that in mind, on August 8th, extradition papers pass from Governor Thomas Reynolds of Missouri, because remember, Boggs isn't the governor anymore. And they come to Governor Carlin, the governor of Illinois. And then they give those papers to the sheriff who then comes to arrest Joseph Smith. And now is the moment for Nauvoo's law to come into effect and see if it works. So the city council of Nauvoo, which functioned as the municipal court, they issue a writ and the writ basically says, you can't take him. Like we have the right to look at this. So the sheriff not knowing what to do, like he's not a lawyer. He goes back to governor Carlin for instructions to find out what he's supposed to do. And during the time when he's doing this for the two days that the sheriff is going back to talk to the governor, Porter Rockwell and Joseph Smith, they're like, we're out of here. See ya. So Oren Porter Rockwell, he goes to Philadelphia and he's going to be away for quite some time. And for the rest of this year, essentially for the fall of 42, Joseph's in hiding and he has to remain in concealment because at any time people could come and arrest him. And to make matters worse, Emma's really sick during the fall. And so sometimes he can be with her and sometimes he can't. I mean, we know that he visited her on the 20th of October and a little bit longer stay on the 28th, but she's up and down physically for a lot of this time and he can't be with her and friends would bring Joseph to the Mississippi out on a boat and he would go and he would have conversations with Emma. And it was just so difficult because he's not home, but he's able to actually come out of hiding in December. Because the U.S. District Attorney for Illinois, Justin Butterfield, passed his opinion that the extradition of the prophet Joseph Smith was unconstitutional. And that's because Joseph Smith wasn't in Missouri on May 6th, conspiring to kill Governor Boggs. So he's not a fugitive from justice because he wasn't in Missouri. That's when the crime occurred. So if he had committed a crime so goes the reasoning. Then the crime occurred in Illinois, he says. And here's why. Joseph wasn't in Missouri. He didn't pull the trigger. So if he committed a crime, it would have had to have been in Illinois. Therefore, the Missourians couldn't prosecute him. Only Illinois could prosecute him. So on December 27th, Joseph, surrounded by 15 of his supporters, Butterfield himself presented the petition. That was his his legal brief. And on January 5th, Judge Pope handed down a favorable judgment, and the Missouri writ for Joseph's extradition on charges of conspiring to kill Governor Boggs was over. And so there are some really cool poems that we put in the show notes that Joseph's friends wrote, and they actually sang these songs on Joseph being free. And on January 5th, 1843, there's a lot of jubilation in Nauvoo. Because Joseph now finally is out from under this, or at least he's out from under the assassination attempt. Now, what about Oren Porter Rockwell? See, he's still in Philadelphia. And part of me thinks that when he hears that Joseph's free, he probably thinks, hey, I can come out of hiding. I don't know what he was thinking because he doesn't tell us. But on March 5th, 1843, he's heading back up the Mississippi to Nauvoo. And he's caught in St. Louis. And so he's actually arrested and they bring him to independence. And so on March 11th or 12th, he has to stand before the court, but they don't have evidence. And so he's not indicted. But what do they do? They keep him in custody. So even though they don't have evidence, in March of 1843, while Joseph's back in Nauvoo, Orrin Porter Rockwell is going to be in jail and he's going to have his hand and his foot shackled And he has to sleep on this filthy straw without bedding. He says, quote, I ate awful food. He doesn't even know how long he's going to be in jail. So he actually makes an escape attempt. He saws the shackle off his foot in his hand so he can get out and they catch him. And so now they have charges. They charge him with a jailbreak attempt and he's found guilty. And so now he's still in jail. And so he writes to Alexander Donovan and he says, Donovan, will you defend me? And so he does. Donovan comes to his trial. And even though he was found guilty at this trial of an attempted jailbreak, they don't have any evidence to hold him over for the attempt on Boggs. And they sentence him to five minutes in the Clay County Jail. But according to Rockwell, he believes that he was held for a long time. It wasn't five minutes. He says it was several hours. And he thinks that they held him there so that they could charge him for another crime. And Donovan works his legal wizardry, and he gets Rockwell sprung from jail at 8 o'clock at night. So he's in jail all day, and Donovan tells Porter, he says, if I were you, I would not hang around. I would make a beeline for Nauvoo immediately like get out of here. And so Oren Porter Rockwell does. He he just takes off and he goes to Nauvoo. Now I want you to imagine first of all there, we have a picture of him in the show notes. There's some fun pictures of Oren Porter Rockwell. He is a character. So now I want you to imagine Porter has been in prison for six months, basically sleeping in dirt and filth. And so he he makes a harrowing journey back to Nauvoo, walking and riding hundreds of miles through the Midwest countryside, dodging vigilantes along the way. And he arrives on Christmas day, road worn and bedraggled. He goes straight to the mansion house where Joseph and his family are having Christmas and they're having like a celebration with many of their friends. And he walks in. And somebody thinks it's a Missourian. Like, who is this stinky, messy person with long hair falling all over his shoulders? So he comes in and and Joseph says, he looked like a Missourian. I commanded the captain of the police to put him out of doors in the scuffle. And then Joseph says, I looked him full in the face. And to my great surprise and joy, I discovered that it was Oren Porter Rockwell. And so they embrace. And at this moment, then Porter is free from custody. Now, this isn't going to be the only time he's in custody. And I really do believe kind of reading different biographies of Oren Porter Rockwell, frankly, that after Joseph is killed, I think he really carried a burden, a burden of guilt, uh, thinking that, you know, I could have defended him sometime during this time. in Christmas is the famous prophecy that Joseph gave him where he said, Oren, if you don't cut your hair, nobody can kill you. It's kind of a cool prophecy if, you, if you've ever read about Samson. So that's a little bit about Warren Porter or Rockwell. I like those stories. They kind of add some color to these experiences, but it really helps explain the context of 127 and 128 that Joseph's in hiding. He's in this horrible circumstance, but the tone of these revelations is
0: not depressing at all. Not only that, but think about what's coming through him. Some of the greatest revelations. Joseph is revealing the means of saving billions of people. Billions of people that have left us the legacy of their lives, and many of them, to them we owe our circumstances, we owe the country we live in, now we have the means of bringing salvation to them. And that's what's being revealed while Joseph is in hiding. And Joseph can't help but contain the joy of that good news. And so as you read this week, I want you to notice the difference between The sorrow of the circumstance that he's in, and yet the thrill for the truths that are being revealed. And let this be a lesson to all of us in our challenges, that when we're, so to speak, in hiding, when we're running from peril, that we can step back and see all the blessings. Joseph says, as for the perils which I am called to pass through, 127 verse 2, They seem but a small thing to me, as the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life. And for what cause it seems mysterious, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world for some good end, or bad as you may choose to call it. But nevertheless, deep water is what I am wont to swim in." It has all become a second nature to me. And I feel like Paul to glory in tribulation for to this day has the God of my fathers delivered me out of them all and will deliver me from henceforth for behold and lo, I shall triumph over all my enemies. Now he says this, now think he's in hiding at the peril of his life. He cannot be with his very ill wife. And yet he says, let all the saints rejoice, therefore, and be exceedingly glad for Israel's God is their God. If you turn to 128, you're going to hear Joseph just pick up that same idea, even though his life is in peril. He says in verse 19 of 128, what do we hear in the gospel, which we've received a voice of gladness? a voice of mercy from heaven, a voice of truth out of the earth, glad tidings for the dead, a voice of gladness for the living and the dead, glad tidings of great joy. Joseph wrote that in hiding. Look at all the blessings that we've received. Verse 20, glad tidings from Kimorah. And then he begins to list all of the blessings that have come to him. Moroni came. Look at verse 21. We have received the voice of God in the chambers of old Father Whitmer. We have heard from Michael, the archangel. We've heard from Gabriel, from Raphael, and from diverse angels, from Michael and Adam down to the present time, all declaring their dispensations, their rights, their keys, their honors, their majesty and glory, and the power of their priesthood. What's Joseph's conclusion? Verse 22, brethren, Shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. Totally positive. In hiding, when people are pursuing his life, Joseph says, look, I can focus on the negative or I can go count my blessings and focus on all that the Lord has received. Let me take you back to the very beginning of time to what I call the first temptation, back into the Garden of Eden. Heavenly Father has commanded Adam and Eve to not partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, but He has given them so many other trees from which they can partake. So, Heavenly Father says in Moses, Verse 16, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Just not this one tree. So tell me, what would he be pointing at when he uses the word every? Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Wouldn't he be pointing out all the trees he has given them, all the good things that they have? Look at all the blessings in your life. Of every tree thou mayest freely eat. In the very next chapter, Satan comes and uses that same word, but in a very different way. In chapter 4, verse 7, Satan says to Eve, Wait a minute, didn't God say you could eat from every tree? So what's he pointing at when he uses the word every? The one thing they can't do. I would suggest to you that God will always point out the blessings, the good, the voices that you've heard, the marvelous blessings that have come into your life. And Satan will point out what you don't have. Now, if you listen to the wrong voice, you're going to be discouraged. But if you'll listen to the right voice, if you'll listen to the Father, you will see all the blessings in your life, all that you can do, all that you are, all that you have. You won't necessarily see what you don't have. Joseph in hiding is able to say, we have been so richly blessed. Brethren, let's go on in such a cause, on to the victory. It reminds me of something that Joseph Smith says to George Albert Smith, his cousin who went with him on Zion's camp. He will later write, Joseph told me I should never get discouraged whatever difficulties might surround me. If I was sunk in the lowest pit of Nova Scotia and all the Rocky Mountains piled on top of me, I ought not to be discouraged. But hang on, exercise faith and keep up good courage and I should come out on the top of the heap. And Joseph lived that principle in hiding away from his family, away from his sick wife. He looks at everything that we've received, and you hear these beautifully positive words. Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backwards. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. Look at all the trees you have to partake of, and don't focus on the one tree you can't partake of.
1: I love Bryce, the positivity that you've pulled out of this. Joseph sees what this is going to become. He sees all the lives that will be affected. And so cosmically, I mean, you said the word billions and and who knows, right? But cosmically, all of God's children, we're, we're reaching out our hands and we wanna bring them all in. And so a thread that I see that's woven through section 127 and 128 is this idea of a recorder. So important that this stuff gets recorded. And so, over and over again in the sections, it says things like this Verse 6 of section 127 Thus saith the Lord unto you concerning your dead, when any of you are baptized, let there be a recorder and let him be an eyewitness of your baptisms. And then, verse 7 That in all your recordings, it may be recorded in heaven.
0: Whatsoever you bind on earth may be bound in heaven. And then he clarifies that in section 128, verse 8. Or in other words, taking a different view of the translation, whatsoever you record on earth shall be recorded in heaven, and whatsoever you do not record on earth shall not be recorded in heaven. So he's going to quote that whole concept of binding or really recording on earth. And then he says in verse 9, it may seem kind of
1: strange. A bold doctrine, he says, that we talk of. And then he says, a power which records or binds on the earth and binds in heaven. Nevertheless, and then this is the key to me, as I'm going to geek out here on history, in all the ages of the world, when the Lord has given a dispensation, this power has been given. And then the question is, okay, what power? And I think what he's talking about is the power of the priesthood to bind souls to God. And I think when he's saying in that line in verse nine, that it's in all ages of the world, as a total nerd of reading these old, old documents, I go, okay, how do I find this in other places? In some of the oldest texts we have. And so when Joseph says, I'm bringing back stuff that's old, I guess my point is, yeah, he's he's not kidding. There are these really, really old texts that predate what we think were even written down in the Bible. And they're coming from Mesopotamia. And there are things that talk about the creation. And one of the accounts is called Enuma Elish or From When On High. And it's the story of like a council of gods that are trying to figure out how to stop the forces of chaos. And the chaos character is this individual known as Tiamat. And in some depictions is a dragon. In fact, we even have a picture in the show notes of what many scholars would say is a representation of Tiamat in this conflict between Marduk and Tiamat. And as I'm an Old Testament nerd and I read some of these Psalms and the earliest stuff going on in the Bible, a lot of the language is very closely associated with these stories in Mesopotamian literature of the creation narrative that Yahweh or Jehovah is depicted as fighting against the Leviathan or Rahab or the dragon or a cognitive Tiamat is Tihom, which is the deep. And so if you read Genesis, it talks about the creation and that the Lord split the deep and he separated the waters from the waters and created a space where man could live. In these stories in Mesopotamian literature of the creation narrative, Marduk slays Tiamat and order comes out of it. And what I find fascinating in all this and as it relates to our discussion is Tiamat steals the tablets of destiny or what some translators call the tablets of destinies. And because these tablets have been taken from the gods, chaos ensues. And there's so many threads you can pull on this, but one of the threads I want to pull on in a lot of the literature and a lot of the scholarship on this is that when the tablets are taken the rites are ceased. It literally says that the rites of the temple have ceased. And so the tablets have to be back in the right hands for the rites of the temple to continue and for order to exist in the cosmos. Now, there's a lot more, I'm, I'm simplifying this, but I like it as a, as a motif for what we see Moses doing. You see, Moses gets tablets from God. And especially in the language of the Hebrew, as it's depicted in the Old Testament, Moses splits the sea just like Marduk splits Tiamat. There's another story of Ninurta and Anzu and it's kind of the same thing. Anzu is this creature that's like an eagle with a lion's head and Anzu steals the tablet of destiny and Ninurta has to come and thrust his arrows through Anzu to get it and to reestablish order. And so a lot of scholars say things like this motif just keeps getting repeated. And we see some of this where we see the dragon in Revelation 12 and 13. And the dragon rises up and grabs stars. And remember, stars represent spirits. And there's this war in heaven. And Michael is fighting against the dragon. It's the same kind of motif. And so these tablets are associated with order. And they decide the destiny of the universe. They express the law of the gods to the whole world. And they contain supreme wisdom because they're truly the mystery of heaven and earth. There's a lot of scholars that talk about this, but one of them says in both modern and ancient times, there was a text associated with order, kingship, and the right to represent the powers of heaven on earth. And so with this reading of these stories, these early, early creation stories, to me, what I see As I see Adam, you see, if we read the Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith tells us that Adam kept a record and that record was part of the covenant that the children of Adam made with God. And then if you read one of the first revelations in this dispensation, what does God say to Joseph? Let there be a record kept among you. There's something going on with records. And my contention is, is that they're twofold. There's one on earth kept by mortals. And then there's one that's associated with heaven. And what I really find interesting is if you look at the book of Mormon, we have both aspects. It's a record that was created by mortals that were prophets that communicated with heaven, that saw angels. And then in our time period, it went from the hands of an angel to a mortal, Joseph, and he translates it. So it's both, it's heavenly and it's mortal. So I see this in connection with these tablets of destinies as they were. Now, if you really want to pull the thread on like, what were the destinies? One of the ideas, and it comes from this Greek word Moira, which it was, we translate that as fate, but it can also mean lot or appointment. And one of the ways to look at it is that this destiny represents what is to be. I see this as God once again, reaching out his hands. And what he's saying is what is to be is you are my children. And what are you to be? Exalted. And for this to happen, it must be recorded. It must be recorded on earth. It must be recorded in heaven, but you must do your part. And I would contend that the covenants we make in the temple are our tablets of destiny where the Lord says, no, your destiny is your to be mine. Now, when the tablets of destiny are taken back from these characters of chaos, whoever it is that takes it, they have it sealed and pressed to their breast. This is literally out of the translations. The one I'm reading right now is from Stephanie Daly and it literally says that that they were wrongfully taken but then they're sealed to the breast of the god who has taken them back. And then another translator says this, in securing the kingship of the gods and establishing the structure and order of the cosmos, Marduk, the god in this instance who's taken it over and he's the good guy, right? He has firmly consolidated divine power. And then by the way, there's a lot in here about how these tablets were written on stone. And so we have these stone tablets that Moses has that God has written on. But then we have the tablets of destiny that are both God and human or gold and clay. And those are the stones that are affixed to the breast of the high priest in the Exodus narrative. And on each stone is engraven a name of the tribes of Israel. And so it's kind of both. And in all this literature, these tablets, these destinies are attached or affixed to the person who is to be king. Now back up and think about what Joseph's doing in Nauvoo. He is saying everyone can be a king and a queen. So then you ask yourself, Okay, then what's the tablet of destiny affixed to me? And my reading of this, the way I take it is many of these ancient cultures would talk about this covenant and this established order that they would take with them. And I think about, okay, when I receive the endowment, I make covenants that bring order in my life that come from heaven, but they're also mortal because I make the covenant. Do I not take a piece of that covenant with me? And my contention is yes that the garment that we receive in the temple is the physical manifestation of those covenants affixed to my person. And so that's kind of how I look at sacred vestments in all religious traditions. You see the earliest literature of all the creations, they all kind of do this. Hesiod's doing the same thing in theogony. There's this massive battle over how are we going to have order and order is established. And in all these stories, they're told at the new year at the temple, as we put everybody under covenant to remember what are our bearings? Like, where do we go? Even our country has a document, a tablet of destiny, as it were, that if you become elected in this country, you literally raise your arm to the square and you say you will defend this document. And I'm talking about the constitution, that document to a member of this country, the United States of America is to our country, what the tablets of destiny were in antiquity and... The covenants we make in the temple are our tablets of destiny where the Lord says, no, your destiny is your to be mine. I love this stuff. I love getting into this and seeing all the connections. We're just kind of hitting the tip of the iceberg and the details are in the show notes. To me, it's candy, but it's not for everybody. I get that it's a little bit nerdy, but I can't help myself because what I see once again is Joseph sitting in this tradition of this old religion, I mean, when Joseph says, I'm bringing back stuff that's old, I guess my point is, yeah, I, he's
0: he's not kidding. And not only bringing it back, but he's tying it together. I love that he's going to say in section 128 that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glory should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. Joseph is going to weld all the generations together, and he's going to do it on the subject of binding ourselves to God, in this case, through baptism. And that's just thrilling. Yeah. The ordinance of baptism for the dead binds us back to God.
1: And the way the fonts are constructed actually tell a story. The fonts in our temples today are ancient. They have very ancient roots, patterned after the font that's found in the text of the Bible, the molten sea that's atop the back of 12 oxen. And the man who actually carved the oxen that supported the font, the first font in this dispensation, was a man by the name of Elijah Fordham. And the font was actually described by the prophet Joseph Smith in 1841. These are his words. He says The font is constructed of pine timber and put together of staves, tongue, and grooved. Oval shaped, 16 feet long. East and West, and 12 feet wide, 7 feet high from the foundation, the basin 4 feet deep. The molding of the cap and base are formed of beautiful carved wood in antique style. The sides are finished with panel work. A flight of stairs in the north and south sides leads up and down into the basin guarded by side railing. And the font stands upon 12 oxen, 4 on each side and 2 at each end. Their heads, shoulders, and forelegs projecting out from under the font, they are carved out of pine plank, glued together, and copied after the most beautiful five-year-old steer that could be found in the country. That's in History of the Church, Volume 4, page 446. So that kind of gives a description of the font. Now, what does it symbolize? I just want to present to you a couple ideas, and the details are in the show notes, and I understand also that some of this stuff is debated. And so I kind of give both sides. But for the sake of this podcast and to be brief, I just want to talk about the idea of the bull. Now, the word that's used for oxen can also be a bull. So I'm going to go with the word bull, but just know it's a word that can be both. In antiquity, the bull was literally symbolic of the very first character in Hebrew because it represented the first or the first place because the bull was associated with fertility. And in a lot of these ancient religious traditions, the bull actually represented God's procreative power, or you could just say God's creative power. We're going to parse a lot of this stuff out when we get to the Old Testament, but there's different strands or different traditions that are woven together that become what we call the Bible, there were different traditions. So for example, if you lived in the north in Israel, you would have a religious tradition and your stories would be a little bit different than those that lived in Judah. And then after 721, when the Assyrians come in, those scribes and the priests and those people that have the texts, they come down to the south and we join them together. And so in some of these strains of tradition, there's this idea that God is one that wants mankind to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And that phrase is used a lot. And in one of the texts of Genesis, and it's the 49th chapter of Genesis, and this is where Jacob gives the patriarchal blessing to his sons. And there's this beautiful promise of fertility that's given. It says in verse 22 that Joseph is a fruitful bough. He's like this branch that's by a well. And then in verse 24, it says his bow abode in strength, that his arms and his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And then we get into these blessings of fertility in the 25th and 26th verse, and we'll cover these when we get to the Old Testament. But the point I want to draw your minds to is the phrase, the mighty God of Jacob. It's Abir Yaakov. And Yaakov is Jacob, and it's a construct. So we have Abir Yaakov, or it's translated as the mighty God of Jacob, but quite literally, it could be read as the mighty one of Jacob or the bull of Jacob. You see, the Canaanites that lived around these individuals, that was the word for bull. And it really can be, tra- Hebrew has a lot of ambiguity. A word can mean lots of different things. So certainly one translation of this could be the bull of Jacob or the mighty bull of Jacob. And clearly we have bull iconography wrapped up in the old Testament. I mean, if you've read Exodus 32, this isn't a stretch. Like when Aaron's fashioning this bull, the bull could represent fertility or strength or masculinity or the power of God. And then you get into what the horn represents. This is in the old Testament, The prophets are using a horn and they put oil in it and anoint the kings with it. I mean, we're reading about this in the Bible. And so we have these symbols of God. Then you get into the the notion of the sea. There's a lot of scholarship on this, but essentially the idea of the waves of the sea, they can represent sometimes negatively, they can represent chaos, but they can also represent life. And so we have all this imagery where we have prophets or patriarchs meeting their wives at the well, or representatives of them meeting their wives at the well. We have Moses in the conflict at the well as he's introduced to his wife. And we also have some of this stuff that's outside of the Bible, some goddesses that are associated with water, even in a container or a bowl or a sea. One of them is Astarte, this feminine goddess holding the sea in her hands. The sea in some of this imagery represents the throne. I mean, Isis is even depicted as the throne and sitting on her lap is the new king. We have this image of a container with water as a symbol for the divine feminine. This is how we came to earth. We came to earth in the literal water of our own mother, the wellspring of life. I mean, that's where we come from. That image of a circle, which is created by a compass with water, the font represents coming home to mother coming back to life, and then you overlay it with the imagery of being born, but then you have prophets saying things like, oh no, you're not just born, you're reborn. And then also on top of that, you die. Like you go into the water and you come out new, and then you have the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. That is also wrapped up in this idea of the water coming back to mother, being reborn. And then when you combine that with the masculine symbol of God of the bull, what do you have? We have a circle with water in it, the symbol of the divine feminine, on top of the symbol of the masculine. And what I find interesting is that the bulls are all facing out. You know, we always talk about how the the 12 bulls or the 12 oxen represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and they certainly do. And they also represent Ephraim. Like when we get into the text, this oxen represents Ephraim because they're sturdy and they're strong, but it's also a symbol of the scattering, but we're bringing it back in. It's twofold. And so that image of scattering and gathering that is so replete in Isaiah's works is encapsulated in this font that's in the temple. It's a beautiful image. I think it's a symbol of coming
0: home. And what is that symbol teaching me I need to do to keep my temple covenant? Yes. I am involved in this image and finding my place in the image I think is very important. So, those oxen or the bull facing out to the world is a reminder that here are the ordinances I need to spread out to all the corners of the world. So, why do the dead need us? Joseph says in section 128, verse 15, these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. For their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation. As Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. And that concept is so significant, he's going to repeat it. He's going to quote Elijah and then say, It is sufficient to know that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a welding link of some kind or other between the fathers and the children. And what is that subject? It's the baptisms for the dead. And then this sentence, for we without them cannot be made perfect. Neither can they without us be made perfect. So the question I want to throw out this week as you study section 128 is, why do we need them? It's pretty clear in our day that they need us. The Lord has declared that the ordinance of baptism for the dead is to be held in temples in mortality. I suppose that they cannot perform baptisms in the spirit world. I don't know why. I don't understand why spirits can't be baptized for themselves but apparently it has to happen in mortality. So we have to perform a baptism in order so that someone in the spirit world can receive that ordinance. It has to happen in mortality. I understand the urgency of the founding fathers to come to Wilford Woodruff in the St. George Temple and demand action. We need your help. We founded this country so you could have freedom, and you have not performed the ordinances in our behalf. We need your help. I get that they need us, but why do we need them? Why is my salvation dependent upon their salvation? Let me just throw out three thoughts on why I need them. Number one, the temple and its ordinances after my own endowment is the gift of the dead. If it were not for the dead, I would go through the temple once. I was 18 years old when I went to the temple. How in the world could that one visit and one visit only suffice for my entire life? I have to go back over and over and over again to really understand the blessings of the temple. I have fallen in love with the temple and the gift that allowed me to go back again and again and again came from the dead. I need them in order to go to the temple. I will never be perfect without going to the temple repeatedly. Number two. I cannot unlock my salvation unless I help them unlock their salvation. My salvation is tied to their salvation. I want to share a beautiful parable written by my mentor, Mike Wilcox. He wrote in a beautiful book called The House of Glory, the following parable. Once there was a little boy and a little girl who loved Jesus very much and he loved them. They were kind and always told the truth, and whatever Jesus wanted them to do, they tried their best to do. You may come to my house, Jesus told them one day, and there I will give you a gift. They put on their best clothes, made sure they were clean, and they went to Jesus' house. It was a beautiful house, and it made them feel beautiful too just to be inside. They met Jesus there, and he gave them his gift. It was a key, a wonderful key. Take care of this key, he said. Put it next to your heart. Don't let it tarnish or get rusty. Always keep it with you. One day it will open a wonderful door. Whenever you wish, you may return to my house, but each time I will ask to see the key. They promised him they would, and they went home. They returned often to Jesus' house, and each time he asked if they still had the key. They always did. One day he asked if they would follow him. He led them to a hill covered with green grass and trees. On top of the hill was a mansion in the middle of a beautiful garden. Even in their wildest dreams, they never imagined anything so magnificent. "'Who lives here?' they asked him. "'You may,' he answered. "'This is your eternal home. I've been building it for you. The key I gave you fits a lock in the front door. Now run up the path and put your key into the lock.' They ran up the hill and through the garden to the front door. If it's this beautiful on the outside, he said, it must be even more wonderful inside. But when they reached the front door, they stopped. It was the strangest door they had ever seen. Instead of one lock, the door was covered with locks, hundreds of locks, thousands of locks, and they had only one key. They put their key into one of the locks. It wouldn't fit. They put it into another. It didn't fit that one either. They tried many different locks. Finally, they found the one that fit. They turned the key and the lock clicked, but the door would not open. They ran back to Jesus. We cannot open the door, they said. It is covered with locks, and we have only one key. He smiled at them and said, Do you think you will be happy living in your mansion all alone? Is there anyone you would like to live with you there? They thought for a while and then answered, We'd like our families to live with us. Go find them, he said. Invite them to my house. I will give each one their very own key. Soon you will have many keys. They rushed out eagerly to find their families. They found their fathers and mothers, their brothers and sisters, and all their cousins and brought them to Jesus' house. Just as he had promised, he gave each one a key. When all had been given a key, together they returned to the great door of the mansion. Now they had dozens of keys, but there were thousands of locks, and the door still wouldn't open. They needed more keys. Once again, they returned to Jesus. We have brought our families, they said, but the door still won't open. Do your parents have a mother and a father and a brother and a sister? He asked them. Do you think that they would be happy living in the beautiful mansion without them? If you look hard enough, you will find many, many people. Bring them all to my house and I will give each one a key. They looked very hard, just as Jesus told them. They found mothers and fathers. They found brothers and sisters. They found grandmas and grandpas and great-great-grandmothers and great-great-great-grandfathers. They found aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins. They found them in big cities. They found them in tiny villages. Some lived by the seashore. Some lived on the open prairie. Some lived near the mountains and some lived far across the ocean. Some lived close just over the next hill. Some were blacksmiths and some were farmers. There were cobblers and tailors and fishermen. There were teachers and mechanics and shopkeepers. Some were tall with strange-looking hats. Others were short and wore wooden shoes. They spoke different languages and came from many different countries. The boy and girl searched until they found everybody and all their families. They brought all the fathers and mothers, the brothers and sisters, the aunts and uncles, the nieces and nephews, the grandmothers and grandfathers to Jesus' house. Inside, he gave each one his or her own key. Soon all the family were gathered before the great door. There was a lock for every key. They turned the keys, but the lock remained closed. There was one final lock, a great big one right in the middle of the door, and no one had its key. The boy and girl returned to Jesus. We have found all of our families, they said, but the door still won't open. We are missing a key and we don't know where to find it. Jesus smiled, put his arms around them, and gave each one a kiss. I have that last key, he said, and he held it up. It was bright and shining and beautiful. This is the key of my atonement, he said. Am I not a member of the family? Do you think you would be happy living in your mansion without me? Do you think I would be happy living without you? Now that you have found the whole family, all my brothers and sisters, all our father's children, together we will enter our eternal home, for home will always be where families live and love together. He took their hands, and the whole family opened the door, entered the mansion, and spent an eternity of happiness together. I need their keys. They need my help. I can't be saved unless they help me open the door. And they can't be saved unless I take their name to Jesus' house. It is a beautiful, dependent relationship. I wouldn't be happy living in my mansion without my family. They wouldn't be happy living in the mansion without their families. And so it goes until we've gathered everyone into the mansion.
1: Do you remember Ann Booth's vision where she sees David Patton? If I'm a Methodist and I die and all these Methodist ministers are in the spirit world and they're like, Mike, the restoration's real. Here's an apostle, David Patton. Listen to this discourse. It's been restored. It's a network of humanity that needs each other. And even if you're not into that visionary experience, think about this life. I can't possibly influence my children as much as their friends, as much as their leaders. And then one day my sons will marry a daughter that's hopefully been raised and taught well that will influence them more than anything I could do. In fact, I need those parents that are raising those daughters to raise the kind of daughter that my son can marry. And they need me to raise my son to be the kind of person that would be honorable to marry them. And so it's this big network of how much we're all connected. And that's why, Bryce, I love the image of a tree. Like we even use that when we talk about the family. The roots need the branches and the branches need the roots. It's just a beautiful image. So while you were talking about number two, I was like, man, there's a lot of connection going on there.
0: There is. And that's the idea. Your son wants to be in the mansion with his wife who wants to be in the mansion with her parents who wants to be in the mansion with their parents. And so it goes. We're all connected. I need them. They need me. Now, let me do number three. As I bless the dead, the dead bless me. We can open up incredible and divine sources of help if we help them. I help them they help me. Let me just share a few quotations from some apostles. John A. Witzel said, I have a feeling also, my dear brethren and sisters, that those who give themselves with all their might and main to this work receive help from the other side, and not merely in gathering genealogies. Whoever seeks to help those on the other side receives help in return in all the affairs of life. On another occasion, Elder Woodso so said, I believe that the busy person on the farm, in the shop, in the office, or in the household who has his worries and troubles can solve his problems better and more quickly in the house of the Lord than anywhere else. If he will leave his problems behind him and in the temple work for himself and for his dead, he will confer a mighty blessing upon those who have gone before him. And quite as large a blessing will come to him. For at the most unexpected moments in or out of the temple will come to him as a revelation, the solution of the problems that vex his life. That is the gift that comes to those who enter the temple properly because it is a place where revelation may be expected. I bear you my personal testimony that this is so. If I help them, they help me.
1: John Witzow also said, in our pre-existent state, we made a certain agreement with the Almighty. The Lord proposed a plan and we accepted it. Since the plan is intended for all men, we became parties to the salvation of every person under the plan. We agreed right then and there to not only be saviors for ourselves, but saviors for the whole human family. We went into a partnership with the Lord. The working out of the plan became not merely the Father's work and the Savior's work, but our work. The least of us, the humblest of us, is in partnership with the Almighty in achieving the purpose of the eternal plan of salvation. That places us in a very responsible attitude towards the human race. By that doctrine, with the Lord at the head, we become saviors on Mount Zion, all committed to the great plan of offering salvation to the untold numbers of spirits. I just love it. It's, we're back to that idea of we're connected.
0: Yep. Now, let me give a modern day example of that. This is a story from a dear friend of mine named Kim Sorensen. You can find her story in the August Enzyme of 2006. She tells the following story. A few years ago, I found myself frequently in fervent prayer, pleading for blessings for myself and my family, blessings I knew we needed. I knew the blessings I sought were righteous desires, yet they did not come. Each time I prayed, the only impressions that came were urging me to do family history and temple work for my ancestors. The great irony was that one of the things I was seeking so feverishly was more time. I felt overwhelmed with my life. I was the mother of four young children. I worked at least six hours a day on a home business. I had a demanding church calling and my husband traveled a lot on business and served in a student ward bishopric. Now the Lord was asking me to dedicate time and energy I didn't think I had to family history work. It had never even crossed my mind that I should be doing family history. I had felt that it was quote, not my season that it was something I would do later in life. But in kind persistence, the answer to every prayer was the same, to seek my ancestors and do their temple work. One afternoon, the demands of my life hit an all-time crescendo. I went to the Lord in prayer, and again the prompting came to seek out my ancestors and do their temple work. But this time I was willing to follow those promptings. As impossible as it seemed, I decided to make a promise that I would spend an average of one hour a day doing family history work. I felt peace in my heart as I made the commitment, but logically I could not see how I was ever going to do it. I decided I would give the Lord my best hour of each day. I set aside the precious hour when my three-year-old was at preschool and my baby was napping. At first, this was a trial of my faith. It was difficult for me to shut out all the other pressing demands of my life, but each day I diligently put in my hour, trusting that the Lord would bless me. I knew nothing about family history, so my first hours were spent doing simple things like calling family members to gather records, sitting at the computer trying to learn the family history software, and entering my family data onto the computer. Even though my daily strides were small, I knew that the Lord recognized the sacrifice I was making because I began to feel His Spirit in my life more than ever before. I had prayed for more time. It didn't take me long to notice that I was somehow getting more accomplished each day that I worked on family history than I ever got done on the days before I gave this hour to the Lord. Generally, the blessings came in small, almost imperceptible ways. The children weren't getting sick. The appliances and cars didn't need repairs, for example. But one day, the divine assistance was obvious. I had a son who needed jeans and a pair of shorts for scout camp. I purchased some for him, but when I took them home, they did not fit and were not the style he had hoped for. So I decided on the following Saturday, I would take him to the mall and try again. I figured that with the drive time, it would take at least three hours of the day. When Saturday came, I attended first to my family history and ran some errands. On my way home, an impression came to my mind to go up the street, where I would find a garage sale, and there I would find some jeans for my son. It was only an impression, but I knew it came from the Lord. Knowing the importance of obedience, I followed it. Sure enough, at the top of the street, there was a small garage sale being held for a local charity. When I walked in, sitting on a table in the middle of the garage was a stack of newly and slightly used jeans exactly in my son's size, and next to it, a stack of shorts also in his size. I bought every pair and still paid less than if I had purchased one or two pairs at the mall. When I took them home, my son loved them. That morning, I had given the Lord one hour of my time. In return, he gave me back three hours that I didn't have to travel to the mall that instead I could spend with my children and a strength and testimony that He lives and is mindful of even my smallest challenges. The Spirit prompted me to work on family history. I was able to show mercy to my ancestors and bless their lives by doing for them something they could not do for themselves. And my family has been blessed abundantly. End of quote. That's how it works. When we help them, they help us in every aspect of our life," says Elder Woodso. Not just in family history work. I testify with my soul that students who spend a little bit of time doing family history work get help in their school studies. People with a profession or a business who spend time saving the dead, get help in that business. By saving them, they save me. I am so grateful for the prophet Joseph who opened up a world of blessings and opportunities for all of us by introducing the work for the dead. I have come to love my family and I feel their love for me. And I feel the need to create this welding link between me and them. And so section 128 ends with a plea for all of us to do all that we can to complete that book. After quoting that the sons of Levi are going to offer an offering unto the Lord, Joseph then says, let us therefore as a church and as a people and as Latter-day Saints, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And here's the offering. Let us present in his holy temple, when it is finished, a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. Let's go find our families. Let's open a door for them to help us in our daily lives by helping them in their life. It is a beautiful relationship between the living and the dead. We will study in section 138 the vision of President Joseph F. Smith and the spirit world, and he will teach us that faithful Latter-day Saints, when they die, continue the preaching of the gospel in the spirit world my beloved father passed away recently he was an avid teacher of the gospel i know he is continuing to preach the gospel in the spirit world every time i go to the temple with a name i wonder if my dad taught them in the spirit world i wonder if we're that connected someone my father taught, and I am performing the ordinance. It certainly wouldn't surprise me that we're that connected. This welded link between the living and dead is one of the most beautiful things in the gospel. No wonder Joseph will shout out, shouldn't we go on in such a cause? Go forward and not backward, brethren. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. And with that, we
1: thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we cover section 129 to 132. Thank you for sharing your week with us, and we'll see you next time.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.